All right, Forge family. Last week we were studying together and we were in first chapter of First Timothy, verses 12 to 20, and Paul began with his own personal testimony in an abbreviated form, knowing that Timothy, as a young pastor to the house churches in Ephesus, would need his example and um, his passion to be able to fire up his gifting for the long haul. <clears throat> Uh, Paul was was um, very uh, aware of the, the grace of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord on him personally. Um, and because he'd begun as a, the, the enemy against the followers of Jesus, and, and God flipped him. So he became the primary spokesman to the Gentiles with the message of Christ. <clears throat> um, so he turns to, to Timothy and he, he tells Timothy... Please uh, stir up. Please be aware of. Please rethink all those prophetic words that were spoken over you over the last 12, 15 years of traveling up and down the Mediterranean, over the land masses, as part of the evangelism teams with Paul. And uh, that in so doing, he would be better equipped for the, the long haul uh, of ministering in Asia Minor, including the campaign against false teaching. <clears throat> At the end of that passage, Paul named individuals in the churches of Ephesus whose blasphemies against God had resulted in their removal from the fellowships and their being turned over to the realm of Satan for judgment. So let's pray before we go on. So God who is pure... God who is holy, God who never changes, we bow to you. Your mercy has reached out to us and for us and to our ancestors. Now, Lord God, we want to be those who stir up our prophetic utterances, over those over our own lives, with faith and a good conscience, to be equipped to stand in the line of history for kingdom advance. Yes, we will be opposed. And yes, you will stand with us, filling our mouths with your words and our lives with your ways. Thank you, Lord, that we are to I'm not going to stand alone. We stand with Holy Spirit. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So it's here as we go through this text that I want to introduce more historical, cultural, and spiritual information in the background uh, of Ephesus so that you might be more aware of what Timothy uh, was facing as he began to, to pastor. <clears throat> um, Ephesus is one of the four great metropolises after Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. Uh, not necessarily in that order, was, but um, Ephesus is one of the four great cities of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was um, very set very close to the uh, coast of the Adria of the um, Adriatic Sea, and uh, when the Romans conquered that region in 133 BC, they set up Pergamum, one of the interior cities, as the capital. But the truth was, Ephesus was a whole lot more important because of the trade. They had to buy and sell and transport. Uh, it just made Ephesus an incredibly wealthy city. Lavish buildings, including you know, the, 
the Roman-style baths, the theaters, the huge sports plazas and gymnasiums, brothels, libraries, temples, and marketplaces abounded all over the city. <clears throat> and uh, the largest and most dominant structure was the temple to Diana of the Ephesians. Now, Diana was the fertility goddess that the Romans named. You know, they called her Diana. To the, to the Asia Minor crowd, they called that same goddess, that same fertility goddess, Artemis or Sibylle. And there's, a, there's a leather, another line of other fertility goddesses, all of them claiming to be the queen of heaven. So that's an ancient, ancient term and that's crept into the 21st century. Okay. Um, this, uh, this building that housed the um, temple of, to Diana was the seventh largest building in the empire. It was made out of marble. And there are some pictures of what uh, reconstruction archaeology has done to, to show you a picture it was. Uh, the one I saw had col colonnades, the vertical pillars all down the sides. And uh, it was huge. <clears throat> now, um, because of this, the presence of this fertility cult, this, this, this goddess Diana, if you will, the pictures that remain, the little idols, icons that remain of her, um, they often have many breasts on her torso. And other scholars think that they're actually bull testicles. I mean, this was a, the, the <laughs> fertility goddess apparently swung both ways. I, I don't know. Okay? <clears throat> now, in Greek households, uh, women were chattel. They lived on the other end of the household, separate quarters with the children. They were responsible to bear children and to raise the infants, but they did not instruct their children. That was done by tutors. They did not go to the market to shop. They sent servants or slaves to do that. In Jewish households, uh, the women weren't quite chattel. It was, more, it was more tender, but again, they had no place in the synagogue service. They were not educated. And their job, likewise, was to bear children and raise up little ones. And when they got to a certain age, the boys went off to synagogue school down the block. And the girls learned home ec in, a separate, in the separate quarters, away from the rest of the family. <clears throat> um, now, with the, with the arrival, if you will, or the awareness of this fertility cult, uh, the women in Asia Minor were awakened to the fact that when they got involved with Diana of the Ephesians, there were a lot more freedoms that they ever experienced before. Now, if they could go to the temple, well, they couldn't do that previously. They could get involved in the festivals, etc. And like, um, like the temple in, in Corinth, the, um, the temple in um, Ephesus had its cadres of temple prostitutes for the purpose of, quote, holy intercourse, which, of course, it wasn't, okay? The temple uh, itself was um, a great site for pilgrims. And, of course, when pilgrims show up, so does their money. 
and, and great amounts of money exchanged hands in that temple to such an extent that the temple complex became a bank and, or a treasury. You know, you could go to the temple and get a loan, etc. <laughs> Additionally, uh, that temple complex in, was a sanctuary to criminals. In the time of Alexander the Great, there was a 200-yard sanctuary zone that extended out in every direction from that temple. <clears throat> and it was later enlarged. Finally, Augustus Caesar um, revoked the plans for further enlargement of the sanctuary zone because there were so many criminals that had come to live in proximity to this, this temple. Uh, Ephesus was also the center for the worship of the emperor. Now, the term neokoros was found in Acts 19 in Greek, okay, but it came to be used for cities that had temples set aside to worship the Roman emperor. And it's believed that the wealthy, influential Roman citizens presided over just such a temple in Ephesus, and they led in worship to Nero. The city was a magnet for the eastern Mediterranean area, for the region, for wealthy businessmen, for religious zealots, for criminals, and for pilgrims. Those who lived in Ephesus have had a cafeteria of choices made up of materialism, criminals, you know, criminal activity, brazen immorality, religions of every flavor, and pleasure of every stripe. The house churches in Ephesus had converts that came to them from this open city. Now, women converts from Ephesus who were pagan. They were Greek, they were Roman, they were pagans, whatever it was. They'd been thoroughly, well and thoroughly exposed to Diana of the Ephesians and other godlings. And when they came into the fellowships, these new freedoms and experiences that they'd experienced in Ephesus certainly would have had to have been addressed as they came to faith in Christ. For the Jewish households, the, the women who converted to Jesus as Messiah, you know, they would have had to deal with the Holy Spirit's teaching that there was neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female in those fellowships. Those converted women, those sisters in the Lord, would have been set free to study, to learn, to serve, and to lead. At the time of Paul's personal letter to Timothy, Rome had already been torched. It had been burned substantially, and the Christians in Rome had been scapegoated and had to flee to the catacombs. Nero, um, and there's some background on this, but it's, um, it isn't worth the time on it. He sent legions of Roman uh, soldiers to the far edges of the, of the, of the kingdom of the empire to find and crush house churches and gatherings of Christians of any size. And that was going on in Ephesus at the time of Timothy's tenure. So if, in fact, the legion caught in its dragnet a woman, she would have been violated and turned over to a brothel or to the theaters where her lifespan was very short because they used her wickedly. If a man was caught, he was sent to the galleys. He became a slave to row away his life in the, in the galleys. 
or he would be sent to the mines to work underground until he died. Now, so this was the lethal atmosphere that was loosed in Ephesus even as Timothy began to pastor. Now, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, Paul begins with verses 1 and 2. He says, quote, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Unquote. So, coming directly out of his apostolic judgment call on the false teachers in the churches in Ephesus, Paul turns to Timothy and he says, Here's where you start. You pray. You start with prayer. This exhortation is set in place. Prayer for all people, employing requests based on deep spiritual needs, prayers for general needs, intercession. And, and that word intercession in Greek is really, you come with a, with a childlike faith to the Father, uh, bringing a specific need. And then lastly, thanksgivings, a note of gratitude as a motivation for prayer. The sharp wonder of this text is that Paul is calling brothers and sisters to pray not only for all the men and women around them in Ephesus, in the churches, but also for the emperor, Nero, the rulers of Asia Minor, the military figures, the city clerks, the high priestess of Diana, and any others with great influence. The emperor had set up a system whereby he was, he was going to try and annihilate Christians from the face of the earth. He was going to try and do away with all of them. And then there were others who set out to suppress Christians. And then Paul says, you pray for them like this. The outcome that is hoped for is tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, that is a prayer of faith. Okay? Paul's prayer instructions fly in the teeth of savage treatment and daily oppression. Only Holy Spirit can empower such fervent prayer for those who you uh, who uh, wish who wished you to be banished, defiled, enslaved, or dead, or all the above. The next two verses commend such prayer and faith. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, whoo, you want to stop right there because the Lord God is including all men in his desire that they come to know Jesus as Savior. Even Nero? Now, obviously, if he God had mercy on Paul, he could certainly have mercy on Nero. The message of the New Testament is that God does not want any man or woman to perish without the knowledge of the truth, without salvation in hand. <clears throat> that, that it was Christ's sacrifice for each of them. But instead, you know, that they would all come to repentance. The Greek word for want, it was back up in this phrase where it says God does not want uh, men and women to, to perish. The word want in Greek is thelo. Uh, and it, it had when it's translated, there isn't any universalist connection to that at all. 
It still leaves every man, every woman of mankind has to make their own choices um, to receive the offered salvation bought by the blood of Jesus. Now, God will not overrule the will of those who choose to turn away from him and pursue a life of darkness. God urges us to repentance with his kindness, his goodness, and not with a celestial cattle prod. Now, Paul sets the record straight in verses 5 and 6, where he says, quote, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, <clears throat> the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. So, to the Ephesians, who had heard and seen and experienced many other spiritual options, Paul says to them, there's no offering, there's no quote, sacred intercourse, unquote, no deeds done in the name of any other God. None of that will provide the ransom necessary for dealing with sin in your lives and its guilt and shame. The word ransom speaks of payment for the release of a, uh, a prisoner that was caught up in a war and is being held for ransom. Or that ransom word could also mean paying to set a slave free. Now, you can use both of those interpretations here, but most likely Paul had in mind the, the ransom by the blood of Christ to release uh, someone who was enslaved to sin and to Satan and translate them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The phrase, the man in Christ, the man Christ Jesus, brings us to the historical replacement of the first Adam with the second Adam, one who lived a holy life and pleased God the Father. The phrase, one mediator between God and man, rules out any other high priest of any other god or godlings. Okay, and it even rules out uh, the teachings that angels were mediators between men and heaven. And so Paul just goes, shoo, cuts right through it and says, and drops it. That's not the mediation that Jesus does. Christ is the one and only mediator between mankind and the Father, and he brings the, with him the concept of covenant. And he enters into that covenant as a negotiator, making a new way between God and mankind. Now verse 7 is another of Peter's personal acclamations. Uh, as for this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. And then the um, translation committees, they put, they put in a parenthesis. It's not inappropriate, just to help mark this off. It says, parenthesis, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, close paren, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, it was for the sake of the new covenant between God and mankind that Saul of Tarsus was singled out and chosen to be the herald. Okay? And the word used in this New American Standard text that I'm using is the preacher, the herald, the one who spreads abroad the message, in this case, of the risen Messiah, Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> now, as he came to Christ, okay, um, 
he received an apostolic assignment from Jesus, but he didn't run back to Jerusalem to check in to make sure his credentials were on file in Jerusalem with the other apostles. Instead, he went to the northern Arabian desert for a period of two, maybe two plus years, face to face with Jesus. And when he returned, he came back and filled the role as the one who spoke most plainly and most effectively as an apostle to the Gentiles. <clears throat> now, obviously, there are those who hated Paul. They slandered him. Who said of Paul that he was a liar, a charlatan, a poser, who uh, was a supposed apostle. Okay, here in verse 7, in his own statement, I am telling the truth. Now, his life and ministry proved it. So, all right, Forge family, Paul has laid out for us how the churches are to pray. Okay, in a manner that please, in a, it's, a, it's in a manner that pleases God. Okay, we're to pray for all men and women, not just those brethren and sister, you know, brothers and sisters around us that we love, we're intimate with, but and even some of those who, who oppose us. Uh, but rather, uh, <clears throat> they're, you know, they're, they're all included. Okay, but when you pray, you pray for uh, those in authority over us, all those with uh, authority globally. Okay, even though their actions and their personalities may be evil and vile, and they may be targeting believers, okay, we're to pray for them. Okay? Our prayers are to include specific requests, broad prayers, intercessions in which we spiritually intervene in persecutions, in lawless behaviors. And finally, we're to pray with thanksgiving prayers. That's uh, literally Eucharistia. Prayers. The Eucharist is the statement of uh, is the way to, that the New Testament gives thanks, and they did it with the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup, and they remembered Him in the process. It was the giving of thanks for Jesus. Well, we're to give thanks for what our assignment is. We're to pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us, and we're going to pray for all those others with thanksgiving. And obviously the goal is tranquil and quiet lives. For grace under persecution, for healings of those savaged by the wicked, for resurrections for those who have been killed, and all the glory stories of the power of Holy Spirit to make right and bring righteousness out into the open. And we are to pray in such a manner because we know we are ransomed and we have confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lord of all. So let's pray. Lord God, we know how you called out Saul of Tarsus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Lord, search among us at Forge and call out some of us to be those who are to announce Christ to the lost. And some of us who will take care of for newborn babes and to disciple them to grow up in the faith. And Lord, some of us who will rise to be reformers and revivalists, our eyes are open to the needs. We offer you not just our prayers, but our very lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.